The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, September 20th, 1187. I'm Sally Helm. Daytime outside the walls of Jerusalem, Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt, has found the best point of attack. For days now, he and his men have been circling the holy city in the shadows of its famous Seven Hills. They could hear shouts from inside, and when they first approached, could see men crowded atop the actual walls. Inside Jerusalem are mostly Christians, including the descendants of European crusaders who, back in 1099, captured this city themselves. In the aftermath of that battle, the crusaders slaughtered tens of thousands of people, Muslims and Jews. But now, they're the ones under siege, at the mercy of Saladin. Because as the Sultan sets up camp on the city's north side and surveys its defenses, he knows he's gonna win. His position is too strong. And so he has a choice to make. Should he undermine Jerusalem's foundations and crack its walls and then charge in? Those are, after all, the general rules of war in the Middle Ages. But that choice is not without its drawbacks. Balian of Ibeline, the knight who's currently in control of Jerusalem, has sent Saladin a message. The two know each other. They've actually had friendly exchanges in the past. But Balian has issued a stark set of terms. If Saladin attacks, Balian says he'll kill all the Muslim prisoners under his watch, kill as many of Saladin's soldiers as he can, and destroy the Dome of the Rock, a sacred building marking a stop on the Prophet Muhammad's night journey. At the end of that journey, according to the Quran and other revered Islamic texts, he ascended to heaven and was in the presence of God himself. So Saladin has to decide, accept Balian's terms and show the Crusaders a mercy that they themselves did not show, or attack and risk being known in the Muslim world as the leader who lost one of Islam's holiest places. Today, the siege of Jerusalem. What brought Saladin's army and the Crusaders to this same contested spot? And when faced with a wartime decision of monumental proportions, what did Saladin choose? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Salut. 
Saladin is not a young man as he stands outside the walls of Jerusalem, an army at his back. He's 50. And as the son and nephew of military men, he's known war for most of his life. When it comes to battles, he's been on both the winning and the losing side. This is not a man whose life has been one long victory lap. But Dr. Suleiman Murad of Smith College told us, Saladin's rise before the siege of Jerusalem has seemed fueled by fate. The story of Saladin is like the story of any person who, I'd like to say, became very lucky as a result of confluence of coincidences. He became a soldier at age 14, but his path to power and towards Jerusalem really takes off in his early 30s when he joins a military expedition to Egypt. The man who orders the expedition is Nur al-Din. The son of the most powerful prince in what we call northern Iraq and greater Syria. Nur al-Din is a renowned conqueror. He's determined to unite the Muslim territories between the Euphrates River in Syria and the Nile River in Egypt. And he appoints Saladin's uncle, a general in his army, to lead the Egypt expedition. Saladin serves under him. He was very close to his uncle. His uncle would deputize a lot of things to him when he was alive. And Saladin rises to the occasion. Some chroniclers say that during a key battle near the Nile River, Saladin had his forces pretend to retreat in order to lure the enemy into a trap. Others say Saladin commanded the Muslim army's right flank. But either way, he risked his life to be in the thick of it. That expedition is a success. Nur al-Din gains control of Cairo. Now, he needs someone to be in charge of his newly conquered lands in Egypt. He chooses Saladin's uncle, who, remember, likes to deputize things to his nephew. So Saladin's uncle is at the right hand of power, serving the great Nur al-Din, and Saladin, in turn, is at his uncle's right hand. Just two right hands away from the top, while keeping his eye out for ways to advance. From what we can reconstruct, you realize that this is an extremely ambitious person, someone who always grabs the opportunity whenever it is presented to him, someone who knows where to position himself for success. The first stroke of luck comes when Saladin's uncle dies soon after becoming the Sultan of Egypt, and Saladin is chosen to succeed him. So now he's at the right hand of power himself. And he starts to push his luck. He was supposed to be the representative of Nuruddin in Egypt, but he decided to run things on his own. Egypt was pretty far removed from Nur al-Din's seat of power in Syria, and it's a very wealthy place. Saladin figures he's free to start augmenting his own power, not just remain the right-hand guy. And then, another stroke of luck. Nur al-Din dies in 1174, perhaps just in time. We speculate as historians, we say, if Nur al-Din lived longer, very likely he would have led a military campaign to subdue Saladin and put him in prison. But instead, Saladin is now perfectly positioned to succeed Nur al-Din as the world's most powerful Muslim ruler, no longer at anyone's right hand he launches a series of attacks against other Muslim rulers in Syria and defeats them all. He also marries Nur al-Din's widow, which bolsters his claim that he's the rightful heir to this empire. 
he was savvy, shrewd, incredibly intelligent, enough to climb all the way to become the sultan and the supreme leader of the Muslims at this time in Syria and Egypt. It's now 1186. Saladin's goal is to consolidate his empire by conquering the lands that stretch between Syria and Egypt. These lands, bristling with castles, run along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. They're called the Crusader States. So his main enemies are the Crusaders, the European Christian armies that, at this time, occupy much of the Holy Land. Ninety years earlier, Pope Urban II had given the Crusaders their marching orders in a speech at the Council of Clermont in France. The Pope called on Western Christians to take up arms and recapture the Holy Land from Muslim control. Pope Urban gave that address in Clermont, calling for the nobilities and the population in Western Europe to lead a campaign to liberate Jerusalem. He finished his speech with a shout of Deus Vult, or God wills it. Out of that came what we consider the first wave of crusaders. And out of that came nearly 200 years of blood and tumult that we now call the Crusades religious wars between Christians and Muslims over sites revered by both. Tens of thousands joined that first crusade, many of them wearing a bold red cross on their tunics as a symbol of the church. Less than a year after the Pope's call to arms, the crusaders arrived in Jerusalem and besieged it. They uh, captured the city, massacred many of its inhabitants, and they established the kingdom of Jerusalem which has, at its center, the city of Jerusalem, a city that is holy not just to Christians, but also to Muslims and Jews. Jerusalem is the heart of the monotheistic project. If you look at Christianity, this is the climax of the Jesus ministry on earth. He was crucified there, he resurrected there, and he ascended to heaven there. To Jews, It's the holiest city of their ancestral and spiritual homeland, a city centered on the Great Temple, which symbolized their covenant with God. For Muslims... The Muslims had their own experiences there, primarily the legend about the prophet journeying to Jerusalem at night, sending from Jerusalem to heaven. Whether you talk about Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, Jerusalem occupies a central place. And yet, Murad told us, When the Crusaders initially captured Jerusalem in 1099... As far as we can tell in terms of documentary history, the Muslims were largely indifferent about it. But that sentiment changed over time. Nur al-Din was planning to recapture Jerusalem before he died. The Crusaders had used that city as a rallying cry, and he realized that he could too. And Saladin inherited that ambition. He reasoned, Retaking Jerusalem will help me stake my claim to leadership of this crucial part of the Muslim world and usher me into the pantheon of Muslim history. It would catapult him into the most important hero of Islam that only equaled, if one say, or surpassed by the Prophet. And therefore, in the back mind of Saladin, there was this dream that if, if he were to accomplish the liberation of Jerusalem or recapture of Jerusalem, that is a feat that his patron, Nur al-Din, 
lived all his life dreaming about but was never able to achieve. In 1187, Saladin doesn't describe his plan for Jerusalem as simply a military campaign. Instead, he pulls a Pope Urban II. He describes it as a sacred cause pre-approved by God. Saladin proclaims himself as nothing less than the leader of a holy war defending Islam against Christianity. There's just one technicality to deal with. He and the kingdom of Jerusalem have a truce. But a prince named Reynald de Chatillon has been breaking it, harassing Muslims on their way to Mecca. He attacks pilgrim ships, and hundreds of pilgrims drown. Reynald of Chatillon would constantly attack them, kill them, and that angered Saladin, because if Saladin is unable to protect pilgrims, then all his legitimacy is put to question. So Saladin became very angry, Still, he feels he can't just attack right away because of the truce. So instead, he issues an ultimatum to the king of Jerusalem, Guy de Lusignan. They know each other, and Saladin tells Guy, You have to solve the problem of your bully, Renald of Chatillon. Stop him, or otherwise I will stop him. Guy was indecisive. And that gave an opening for Saladin to say, okay, you are not stopping him, then the truce between us is over. I'm marching against the kingdom of Jerusalem to solve this problem once and for all. And here, the domino pieces fell exactly like Saladin dreamed they would fall. Saladin gathers an army and marches off to confront the crusader army. It's led by Guy de Lusignan and Reynald de Chatillon and it's one of the largest armies the region has ever seen. Saladin takes his own soldiers to a spot about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, near the Sea of Galilee, next to an extinct volcano at the village of Hattin. Saladin's three-part strategy is simple. Seize the best ground in Hattin, lure the crusaders there, outmaneuver, and then beat them. The Battle of Hattin was really fascinating. They teach it in military schools. It's just about the difference between smart uh, tactics and smart planning and reactive planning. When you start reacting, you always fall short. Getting to Hattin first has given Saladin several advantages and forced the Crusaders into that dreaded reactive position. Saladin sends his cavalry out to harass the Crusader soldiers as they march across an arid plain. Archers on horseback slow the Crusader advance by thinning their ranks. A Christian poet describes the relentless arrows that engulf the pious cohort. A Muslim historian says the arrows plunged into them, transforming their lions into hedgehogs. Even more crucially, Saladin's army is able to dominate the best fighting ground while seizing Lake Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, the area's major water source. The Crusaders arrived very late, and they realized they don't have access to the water. They can't camp next to the water, so they decided to camp on the slope of Hattin. In a precarious position. They can't take the better spot, because Saladin's already there. What why to were do they now? late? Okay. They just like right? had trouble getting their boots together in the morning or what, why uh, did they show up late? Uh, that's the thing, you know, coming late and deciding to camp there was probably the worst 
military blunder you could imagine. After studying the situation on the following morning, July 4th, Reynald of Châtillon is said to have muttered, Great God, this is our grave. The crusaders are thirsty, wearing heavy armor, and the brutal sun is beating down. You are talking here about July, the hottest month of the year in the Eastern Mediterranean. Saladin and his army have plenty of water, water carried by camel in bulging goatskins from the banks of Lake Tiberias. Crusader King Guy de Lusignan and Reynald de Châtillon are becoming ever more desperate to reach the lake. As the hours to ticking, they don't have water and they don't have access to the water and they start to panic. The Muslim force is blocking their way, but they have to get to the lake. Essentially, that forced them to decide that we should attack, even though they didn't have yet the whole plan figured out. The Crusaders march towards Saladin's army across a long stretch of dry brush. Saladin's horsemen gallop forward and set that brush on fire. The thirsty Crusaders are now choked by smoke. The front rank of their army makes three desperate charges in a bid to reach Saladin himself, and three times, they're beaten back. Finally, they were so fatigued, so exhausted, so thirsty, that they just sat down and the Muslims rallied around them and captured them. Saladin's 17-year-old son, who's at the battle, writes that when his father realizes victory is at hand, he dismounts from his horse and gives thanks to God Almighty. It's a common gesture throughout the Crusades, chalking your victory up to divine intervention. Guy de Lusignan, the king of Jerusalem, is captured and eventually imprisoned at Damascus. He'll be released a year later. As for Reynald de Châtillon, some reports say Saladin ordered him taken away and executed for breaking the truce that was supposed to protect Muslim religious pilgrims. Others say that Saladin used his own scimitar to behead him then and there. Saladin has won an unexpectedly decisive victory. He's even captured a shard of the true cross, a Christian relic that had been carried into the battle by a bishop. Now, the whole balance of power in the region has been upended. The Crusader army is all but wiped out. A large part of them now either injured, killed, or prisoner in Saladin's camp. So all the remaining territories are weak. They cannot defend themselves, Jerusalem included. Saladin hadn't planned to pursue his ultimate goal so soon. But now he finds himself a hundred miles north of Jerusalem with a clear path to seize the city. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As Saladin gathers his forces to march on Jerusalem, a crusader knight finds himself in an unexpectedly powerful position. Balian of Ibeline is kind of where Saladin once was, at the right hand of power. He's a second-tier knight with no real path to the throne. Balian was at Hattim, and he managed to flee. He decided to go to Jerusalem. En route to the city, Balian reaches out to Saladin. He tells Saladin, I want to bring my family and kids to Jerusalem. Would you let me? Saladin has become known as a leader who will sometimes vanquish his enemies and sometimes cut a deal. And he grants Balian's request with conditions. Don't take up arms against me and don't stay in Jerusalem long. But when Balian arrives in the city, he finds chaos. The king is in prison. Many of the top-tier knights are dead. And it occurs to Balian, maybe he's a second-tier knight no longer. So Balian become one of the contenders ultimately to the uh, title of King of Jerusalem. You could compare him to Saladin in some ways. He's very savvy, very intelligent. It's clear to him that someone needs to organize Jerusalem's defenses. The people are pleading with him that you have to stay here and help in the defense of the city. And Balian agreed. If he can mount a defense force, he'll become the de facto King of Jerusalem. The problem is... Not enough knights around, right? Most of them are dead or have left or are in the prison of Saladin. So he starts actually knighting certain lower-ranking soldiers who otherwise would never have dreamt to become knights. It might not be the world's best fighting force, but it's something. When Saladin arrives at the walls of Jerusalem with his army behind him, he finds himself negotiating with Balian of Ibeline. The Christian knight has clearly broken his promise to Saladin. Not only has he stayed in Jerusalem, he has become its leader. But Saladin seems to have actually seen this coming. Saladin wasn't angry with him because I think probably Saladin all along assumed that once Balian gets to Jerusalem, they are not going to let him leave because they don't have enough people. But it's clear to Saladin which of the two men has the upper hand. He realized right away that the city will fall any day. And yet, Saladin doesn't attack. He starts negotiating with Balian about what to do. Balian sends out that message. If you storm the city, I'll go scorched earth, destroy Muslim holy sites, kill Muslim prisoners. Saladin considers this. The two sides talk and talk and talk. In fact, Saladin might have had an ulterior motive for stretching out the discussion. You could say that he actually intentionally prolonged the siege for two weeks so that his entry to Jerusalem 
coincides with the celebration of the Prophet's night journey to Jerusalem. Remember the Dome of the Rock? According to Islamic scripture, it was a stop on the Prophet Muhammad's night journey. And this is a legend, by the way, what you call the night journey. Saladin is telling the Muslims, I'm almost equal to the Prophet. Especially if he can march into the city on the journey's anniversary, which is a Muslim holiday. And often, you know, today we don't think seriously about religious thought, but in the Middle Ages, those things were extremely important. You know, when you think, you know, what are the chances that Saladin will capture the city on the exact day, the anniversary when the Prophet came to it? And and it starts giving ideas about, did God plan all of this alone? If God planned it, then Saladin occupies a huge part in this plan, right? You know, God is thinking of Saladin before even he created the world. But he doesn't want Balian to destroy the Dome of the Rock. That is the opposite of the symbolism that he's going for. And Balian is doing his best to exploit that. This is a very kind of shrewd strategies on the part of Balian and of Saladin of how you can negotiate with the most benefits for the least damage. For Saladin, that means winning while keeping the holy sites intact. And so he makes his choice. He defies the rules of war that he's known his whole life and accepts Balian's terms. He orders his officers to spare the inhabitants of Jerusalem. On October 2nd, 1187, Balian surrenders. Balian comes out and leads whatever soldiers still there out of the city. He hands over the keys to the Tower of David to Saladin, then exits the scene. Saladin let him leave toward the coast. The Christians, many of whom have paid ransom to Saladin, are allowed to depart in peace. This is a very different scene from the 1099 massacre. Finally, the city is all but empty. So there was that kind of moment where now the city of Jerusalem is ready to welcome Saladin. So he does eventually break through into the city on October 2nd. I mean, tell me about that day. What's the sort of victory of Saladin look like? It's remarkable how much planning went into Saladin's conquering entry to Jerusalem. And here is a second major hero of Islam that Saladin wanted to compare himself to. He's not only entering the city on the anniversary when the prophet came and entered the city. He's also entering the city, liberating it, and making it Islamic again, similar to when the second caliph supposedly came from Medina in Arabia to Jerusalem in the year 638, to oversee the terms of its surrender to the Muslims. As with the Muslim conquerors of 638, Saladin's capture of Jerusalem results in centuries of Muslim rule. It won't end until 1917, at the close of the First World War, when British troops occupy the city. There was this kind of anger and need to claim it back, because in that century, It was hyped up in Christian religious psychology. Some have interpreted Saladin's decision at the walls of Jerusalem in terms of pure self-interest. That, given the circumstances, he did what was best for himself and his legacy. 
This may well be right. But Saladin's name continues to resound in the Muslim world and the Western world for a couple of reasons. The first is for his prowess as a conqueror and for what that suggests. This part of the legacy that if the Muslims unite under a leader like Saladin, they will be able to achieve what Saladin achieved, which is defeat the enemy. So here Saladin stands to be the symbol of this potential unity that would be victorious. The second reason is the mercy shown to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For whatever reason, Saladin decided not to ruthlessly crush his foes. He chose not to put most of them to the sword while enslaving the rest, as so many armies had done so many times before. It's a moment that stands out in the history of the Crusades and that some have interpreted as an act of humanity. It almost doesn't matter why he did it. What matters is that, for once, a victorious army outside a fallen city did not just rush in for a massacre. Nearly 500 years later, a Dutch artist depicted the scene in an etching. It looks almost unreal. On the rocky ground outside the walls of Jerusalem, the ranks of Muslim soldiers have parted, and a long line of unarmed Christians walks between them, safely. Even if you know all about the ruthless political and military and financial machinations that preceded this moment, it's still moving. Saladin started as this foe that gradually uh, many in the West, they respected him so much that they start thinking of him as one of them. And that is the origin of the fascination with Saladin. A fascination, most of all, with what he decided to do one day in 1187 outside the walls of Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For other moments throughout history that are worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Suleiman Murad, professor of religion at Smith College and author of Ibn Ashakir of Damascus, champion of Sunni Islam at the time of the Crusades. This episode was produced by Morgan Givens, sound designed by Brian Flood, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.